If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 16, 17, and 18, entitled the message this morning, Refuse the Mark. Revelation 13, 16 through 18, hear now the word of God. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that as we examine these words and the intensity found in them, that we would ever examine our own hearts, that we would know to whom we belong and what it means to be sealed, what it means to be owned and purchased, for us to understand what your call is in our lives. And we do pray that as we read of the warning that this first century church was receiving in the Revelation, we would understand that same warning to us. So, Father, we do pray that by your Spirit you would grant us this wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I think it's unlikely that any person could stroll too far through modern Western evangelicalism without pretty rapidly coming face-to-face with the issue of the mark of the beast. I remember going into a Christian bookstore looking for a copy of the Westminster Confession. They didn't have one, but they had shelves on the mark of the beast. The best-selling Christian book in the entire decade of the 70s, which was also the best-selling book period in 1970, had as its central figure the beast and his mark, 666. Then we have a series of movies made that took advantage of really our infatuation, if not hysteria, around this issue. I mean, I don't know if many of you would remember this, but, you know, there was the movie The Omen came out. And it was kind of horrifying when the father saw the mark 666 on the head of his son Damien. I mean, it was was scary, but it it was a big hit, big stars. Christians, I think, having been influenced by this high-profile and very sensational point of view, and I say sensational because as I was reading, somebody kept writing dispensationalism, dispensationalism, whatever. But that's where it comes from. It comes from that method of theology called dispensationalism. But we read that, myself included, And I think with the very best of intentions, we placard our bumpers with stickers, warning our potentially ill-fated friends and loved ones to refuse the mark. I don't know if you've seen that. Refuse the mark as a bumper sticker. By this, we mean that people should be careful not to take upon their hands or foreheads the number 666 in any fashion. If you take upon yourself this number, this number of the beast, it is asserted, you will seal your fate in hell. 
Now, I want to state right here that I wholeheartedly agree with the assertion that if you take upon your hand or forehead the mark of the beast, you forfeit your soul. But what does that mean? How does a person take the mark of the beast upon their hand or their forehead? As I was even sitting here, I was thinking to myself, it is funny how we get to the Revelation and we change all of our theology. For 65 books in the Bible, there's nothing really about a tattoo that you get that will send you to hell. We get into the 66th book and all of a sudden, if you get this tattoo, you go to hell. You'd think that it would have shown up earlier somewhere in the scriptures. Well, let me tell you also right up front what I don't think the mark is. And I'm saying these things, and they're not tongue-in-cheek because I went through this whole process where I was nervous about these very things that I'm about to tell you about. I don't think the mark has anything to do with your ATM card. I know, we laugh at that, right? But I remember being taught in such a way that I thought that if I go to the bank and I accidentally sign the wrong form, I'm going to find myself in the hands of Satan. I don't think it has anything to do with the barcodes at the supermarket. Now, since most of us have no idea how those barcodes work, I guess now maybe a QR code. But I remember somebody going, no, you don't understand. In these barcodes, there's a six, there's a six, and a six. And, you know, if you get scanned with it or you're scanning with it, you are in, your soul is in peril. Thirdly, I don't think it has anything to do with having your hand stamped at the return to the park gate at Disneyland. Now, that may sound cheeky or, or silly, but I know people personally, who would not allow themselves or their, chi- their children when they left Disneyland to get their hands stamped for fear and the influence that this kind of science fiction Christianity had upon them. And finally, and there could be any, any number of other things, I, I had mentioned I don't think it has anything to do with a, a literal tattoo, but I don't think it has anything to do with placing computer chips under your skin. Now, I'm not crazy about the idea of having a computer chip placed under my skin. Don't get me wrong. But there have been millions of pages of Christian literature dedicated to the idea that Christians should stay away from any idea of getting a computer chip under your skin, again, for for fear of losing your soul. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I'm not in line to get one myself. But I, and I probably would think twice about it. I think my dog has one. But I don't think it has anything to do with that. Well, what is it? Well, let's back up a little bit. What we find when we study the mark of the beast is, is that it is a satanic parity of the mark of God. See, even before we read about the mark of the beast in Revelation, we read about a mark from Jesus. In Revelation 3.12, we read, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, 
which comes down out of heaven, and I will write on him my new name. Well, let me just tell you, and I've read, I mean, into the hundreds of books on this, and maybe somebody has the view. Nobody I have ever read interprets Revelation 3.12 to mean that they will actually have the name of Jesus Christ physically tattooed on their bodies. Nobody reads it that way. Then we go and move forward to Revelation 7, where we see a similar reference of something on the forehead. Revelation 7, 2 through 4. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice with the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. I, I'm taking this to be uh, the, the tribulation that the early church was going through, and, and God's kind of, and we see this also, we're going to see it in just a second in the Old Testament when Babylon was evading Israel, this idea that God is setting his people apart by a mark, right, here on their foreheads. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. See, what John is recording here is not the mark of the beast, but he's, reco- he's talking about God's mark, God's seal. He associates the putting of his mark on his children with this idea of being sealed. God seals his servants on their foreheads. What does that mean to be sealed? Writing to Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul uses the same word and he says this, in him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He uses it later in chapter 4 also, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what is a seal? Because the seal and the mark seem to be designating the same thing. A seal is a mark that is designating to whom someone or something belongs. You know, at this point, you might want to take it personally, and you might want to ask yourself, to whom do you belong? Who owns you? See, this, this seal is generally associated with a king, and you, you've probably seen this in, in movies, where they, they melt wax, and he presses his royal seal on the wax, demonstrating his ownership, demonstrating that it's, it's, it belongs to him. You're, you're gonna, you have a parcel that's going out, and you know that that parcel belongs to the king because of the wax and his seal upon that wax. So the seal, or mark, symbolizes those who, as Paul writes, trust in Christ. See, it's not some new fandangled methodology when we get to Revelation. The mark or the seal is who owns you. And we see that, by the way, all through Scripture. That's not just something that comes up in the last book. Who owns you? The hand and the forehead. Now, assuming that most of the people, at least some of the people, the the Christian leaders receiving the original revelation, I I would guess John you know, who wrote this, and the people in that community probably had a better understanding of the Old Testament than most most Christians do today. 
How would they have understood receiving a mark on the hands or forehead? So if you were conversant with the Old Testament, and then you, you know, which we should be, right? I mean, there's over 500 allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament. You're not going to understand the Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. Now, if you understand the Old Testament and you hear about the hand or the forehead, what does it bring to your mind? Well, Moses records in Deuteronomy, and we read it as our call to worship today, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You see, this reference to the hand and the forehead alluded to obedience to the law of God in thought and deed. We say that a lot, thought, word, and deed, thought, word, and deed. The idea of what's going on up here being expressed by what's going on here. What's, on my, what's in my head extended to what is my hand finding to do. So we have two marks as we read the Bible for our consideration the mark of God and the mark of the beast. The question is, what mark do you have? I mean, that's the big question. In our thoughts and in our deeds, do we serve God or do we serve the beast? Now, I'll give you a little preview here, you know, because it's the number of a man. I mean, we could put it this way. Do we serve God or do we serve man? Who is your master? I mean, have you ever thought of that? To whom do you belong? To, to whom do you pledge your allegiance and the ultimacy of your very heart? I mean, we, we could pledge allegiance to our, our nation, I guess, or we could pledge allegiance to our family and, you know, commit ourselves to our teams and our schools and all that. But ultimately, when you get down to the end of it, who is in control of your life? Who, to, to whom have you granted the ultimate access of the essence of who you are? Who is your Lord? Who is your master? Is it Christ or is it the beast? This is not just for some end of history phenomenon that's taking place. These are questions that could be asked throughout the course of human history. God will mark those who are his. And he grants them protection. Again, I, I had mentioned that this was, Revelation chapter 7 was written with the, in the context of this invasion where God would protect his own people. Earlier in the Old Testament, you know, when Babylon was about to invade and destroy Jerusalem, we see the same reference to taking place there. And I'll just read, we'll just read the, the story together in Ezekiel 9. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. And in other words, these are the people who see where their nation is going and it breaks their heart. 
These are the people who have, have a heart for God and they see the apostasy of the land. He's saying, seal those people, put your mark upon those people. To the others, he said, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. You understand what's going on here. There's a nation that's going to destroy another, another nation. God is judging a nation, but he's sparing those within that nation who have faith, who are trusting, who are taking a stand for that which is good and right and true and, and that have hearts and minds extended toward him. Having the mark of God upon you means that you are acceptable to the Lord. In Exodus 28, we read that Aaron, representing the people, bore an engraving on his forehead. This was a sign of God granting them acceptability. We read in Exodus 28, 36 through 30, uh, 38, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban and it shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. We recognize that Aaron, it wasn't Aaron who makes us acceptable. It's Aaron as that type of a high priest who is Christ who makes us acceptable to the Lord. Now, I've seemed to have written more about having the mark of God than having the mark of the beast. And maybe that's a good thing for us to concern ourselves more with having the mark of God than what seems to me, at least as I examine, this trap of religious sensationalism that has captured the heart of the church. It is, uh, it is, it is pop theology, and it is very influential. You know, I remember reading sometimes, somebody told me one time, you've got top, pop, and slop when it comes to theology. You know, if you, if you, you, know, if you read the top, you may come up with pop. But if all you read is the pop, you're going to end up with slop. And so we really need to, you know, we need to ascend ourselves to, to a real genuine study of what these things actually mean, rather than just trusting the movie that came out, or the novels that are written, and so forth. But for the sake of understanding, let's just take a few minutes and see if we can be the people that John writes about when he says this, let him who has understanding... Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Let's see if we can at least engage at some level in that calculation. Because he's writing this assuming, right, that they're going to come to some conclusion, right? Whoever in your group seems to have understanding, let them do the calculations. Let him who has wisdom figure this out. You know, so if we're there and we're in one of those seven churches, we're going... Who knows Hebrew with the best? You know, who, who can cipher this for us? Now, let me just tell you, so many games, acrostics, anagrams, and speculations have been played with this number that I hesitate to make any suggestions at all. 
you know, when it was pointed out to me that if you can do an anagram with Britney Spears and come up with the word Presbyterian, <laughs> I'm like, all right, I guess you can make things work. But there have been some very high-profile guesses throughout the course of human history. I mean, it's been very popular within Reformed Protestant circles to say it's the Pope. It's equally as popular in Roman Catholic circles to say it was Martin Luther. It was highly thought that it might have been Napoleon. Who would have been a better candidate in the 20th century with the Holocaust and it being Hitler? But also, a lot of people thought it was Henry Kissinger, and others thought it was Reagan, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 6, 6, and 6. But there is one name, I think, that is quite closely related to this number, and it is a name which I think fits the historical context of the Revelation, and that is Nero Caesar. And I, I just want to point out this, that people who I don't agree with eschatologically, people who are premillennial, people who are amillennial, many of them will say, well, the first century church would have understood this to be Nero. A lot of them will say that, but then they'll say, but there'll be another one. Nero was kind of a type of the final beast that's going to show up at the end of history. But I think, you know, if we're going to kind of stick to, you know, our understanding of the interpretation of Scripture where we want to, under we want to understand what the original audience understood, we need to examine this a little more closely. In Hebrew, there are no numbers. The alphabet serves double duty for letters and numbers. It's called gematria. For example, on the wall of Pompeii was found an inscription which read, I love her whose name is 545. I guess they needed wisdom to calculate that one. I wonder if 545 ever figured out that she was loved by this guy. And it just so happens, not to go into all the details here, that the numerical value of Hebrew letters for the name Nero Caesar adds up to 666. And I do think that Hebrew Christians could calculate that quite easily if they understood Hebrew, which many of them did. John is appealing to those who could, with the words, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Now, let me just say, it is highly unlikely that any of John's readers would have read this and said, all right, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. And they, I doubt any of them went home, put their head on the pillow, prayed for a while, got out their Hebrew lexicons, did their study, and drew the conclusion, I think it's Henry Kissinger. Now, I have to say, if you, if you decided to study this, and somebody during Q&A might ask this question, there, there are and there were a number of names that could fit into 666. So it's not like, this isn't like a slam dunk. And quite frankly, I don't think it's really super essential that we know that it's Nero. I, I think it could have been any contemporary power of their time. But, you know, all you have to do is add a, a title, and then you can change the numbering. I mean, people would play games to make it work the way they want it to work. 
But I think it narrows itself down when we cross-reference this with another passage in Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, where John also appeals to the mind which has wisdom. He's saying it there too. To the mind that has wisdom, figure this out. He writes, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. So in Revelation 17.10, we learn who the current king is. Now, I'm, I'm saying this because I'm arguing, I think there's pretty strong evidence that we're talking about Nero here with this beast, with this mark. Because if you calculate the Caesars, five have fallen and one is. So we're being told in Revelation 17.10 who the Caesar is. One is. Five are done. One currently is. Another one's going to come, but he's only going to last for a short time. Well, I mean, in case you don't know, here's the order of the Caesars. You had Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, that's five, and then one is Nero. He was the sixth Caesar. And interestingly enough, Galba, who was next, ruled only seven months, i.e. a short time. All this to say that I think the most obvious answer to who the beast is would be Nero. Well, there's more to the argument. But I'm willing to acknowledge that maybe it's a different Caesar if we get, for example, historical, extra-biblical evidence that the Caesars were numbered differently. I'm not planting my flag on it being Nero. What I am saying, though, is that they are being instructed about a person in power in their day who's going to require some things of them. And it has nothing to do with a tattoo. It has to do with their allegiance of mind, of of activity. That's what is being challenged in terms of these people. Now, the ability of first century Rome to keep people from buying or selling was beyond maybe any of us could realize. I mean, there was an emperor cult, there were trade unions. The idea that you were going to participate in that society, just doing your normal life. I just don't want to buy. I want to buy a a loaf of bread. I I want to, you know, sell something so I can buy something else. Was not going to happen unless you had some sort of public display of allegiance to the Caesars. If you spoke against the Caesars, if you did as Polycarp and go, I will not burn incense, and I will not say Caesar is Lord, you likely were going to be put to death. At very best, you're not going to be put to death, but you're not going to be able to um, integrate yourself into the commerce of the culture in which you were living. Caesar was a political figure. As we have studied, he's become also a religious figure. Remember we were talking about how the second beast was to market the deity of the first beast, but also a cultural economic figure. He's going to control what you buy and what you sell. The empire, the Roman empire, had their finger on every aspect of a person's life. All right, so let's leave that alone and seek, I think, an application so that this is not just a history lesson, but an application that that extends beyond the first century. You know, Rome 
and all its Caesars, I mean, they're in the wind. We've talked about this. The Roman Empire is a dot. But the kingdom of God is not a dot. It started as a dot and now is extended throughout the whole world. But nonetheless, we should learn from the inspired counsel provided by the Spirit of God when we find ourselves moving in the same direction that things were moving in the first century. The, 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 the revelation is not just written for our amusement. It's written that we might understand those powers that would seize our souls. That we might be able to go, who am I going to believe in? Who am I going to trust? Who wants me? Who wants control of me? And who am I going to give that control to? Who wants to save me? And who can save me? And so forth. See, there are some things that I think, when it comes especially to this number, this number six, that are universally and historically ubiquitous. I think there's something we learned about this very number, and I don't think it's just coincidental. I think it's providential, this idea of the number of a man. Six is the number of a man. He says it. It was on the sixth day that God made man. Six days men are to labor, but the seventh is to be the Sabbath of the Lord. The Hebrew slave was in bondage for six years before his release on the seventh year. And if all of that isn't clear enough, John tells us in the very passage that it's the number of a man. Six, the number of a man. Six, six, six. No matter how many times you repeat it, it'll never be seven. Seven, according to the scripture, is a number of divinity, of completion, of perfection. That is agreed upon, by the way, on almost any theologian you read, that seven is what that number means. This number of completion, of perfection, of divinity, you know, this idea of 70 times 7 and so forth. And the threefold repetition of the six reveals man's full-scale opposition to God. He's not holding back anymore. It's not just six, but it's six, six, six. It is the sin of sins. It is man wanting to be God. We see this theme repeated in Scripture. In 1 Samuel, this might have escaped our attention when we heard the story in Sunday school, but we read this about Goliath. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Here we see the ancient enemy of God's people represented as being six cubits tall and a span. Interesting. Six plus, you know, a hand grasping for more. I don't want to be just six. I'm going to be more than six. I'm going to be, I'm more than a man. Of course, the seed of the woman destroys him by inflicting this head wound, this victory prophesied in Genesis 3, ultimately fulfilled by Christ. And the whole story of David and Goliath, I think, If we really dig deep into it, we realize it's the anointed one of God crushing the head of the enemy of God's people, which is prophesied at the very dawn of man and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Again, we read of Nebuchadnezzar erecting an image of himself in Daniel 3.1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. At the beginning of the downfall of Israel, Solomon received... 666 talents of gold. Now, I'm not going to bother to go into every reference to 666. Suffice it to say, 666 is a sign of opposition to God. 
It's a sign of man beating his chest and saying, I will not submit to God. 666 is man going, I'll be God. And I think we see examples of that all through Scripture. I think the Tower of Babel was man's effort. We can get there. We don't need God. We'll do it on our own. Now, at the time of the writing of the Revelation, the epitome of man's power was found in the dominion of the Roman Empire, a government that was and still is by many considered the most powerful human government ever established. To serve God, thus receiving God's mark, in that environment simply meant hardship. That's the message. To serve Rome, thus receiving Rome's mark, that is the mark of the beast, meant temporary ease. That that is what John is putting forth to these churches. He's saying, if if you take that mark, it'll be easier for you. But if you have decided to put your faith in that which only man can accomplish, then your soul is in peril. That's not something new, right? That's biblical Christianity. I think the most, I mean, I'm going to mention this passage here because, you know, as a pastor, you you know, you are concerned, you know, I have a priorities. My my priorities are my family and my church and then my community, you know, and again, then my nation, I guess, or then the world, or go out or something, you know. But I I think to myself of the direction of the church, Um, not, not just our church, but the church, but most but for me, most importantly, our church. And so when I see religious communities demonstrating the idea that they're going in a foul direction, I think it's good for us as a church to be warned because what I'm about to read here is a religious response to the person and work of Christ. See, Jesus is called the light of the world. And he came into the world, but we read that men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So, with that as a backdrop, when Jesus, God incarnate, stood trial before men, here's what the dialogue looked like. And keep in mind, this is from the religious community, the covenant people of God at the time. John 19, 12 through 15. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. You see right there, it's kind of like Rome didn't care if you prayed and had your quiet times. They didn't care even if you did the sacraments. But whatever you're doing, it better not be in opposition to Caesar. You got one king. You, you, you want somebody else to be your priest? Fine. You had a prophet? Fine. But there's one king, and that king is Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. I mean, we got a religious day going on here as well. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Interesting that providentially he would, of the three offices of Christ, that's the one, right? Not behold your priest, not behold your prophet, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, 
away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, shall I crucify your king? And I would say if we've ever seen in the Bible an example of somebody taking the mark of the beast, we'll see it in the next portion of this verse. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That, my friends, is the taking of the mark of the beast. Now, how does this apply to us today? Because I think we always have to have our antennas up. Right? Again, this isn't just a history lesson. It's not a novel. You see, we live, and I say once again, but this is nothing new. I mean, history, history is replete with nations that would be the beast. There was the original one, and then throughout the course of history, there are plenty on that list. But we live once again in an era when the government wants to be our savior. I mean, I've, in the course of my own lifetime, I've seen it like I've never experienced before, the trust that the government wants us to have in them. Now, again, I, I'm an American, and I, I love my country in a healthy, not court of, kind of idolatrous sort of way. You know, I love my family, but not as, not as idols, I hope, right? But when the government is kind of going, no, we'll take care of you. You look to us. We'll, we'll educate you. We'll, we'll feed you. We'll clothe you. We'll make sure you're healthy. We'll provide your health care. I think the government is moving in a direction that it shouldn't be moving. See, we are then called to pledge our allegiance to the government as our primary caregiver. Rome and Nero sought to instill this allegiance through the fear of death. I mean, we read that. You know earlier, right? If you don't If you don't pledge to this image, you will be put to death. I don't know that we've gotten to that level yet. But today I feel like it's fear of being neglected. Fear of losing our jobs. Fear of being labeled hateful. Fear of kind of being viewed by your culture as a pariah. You know, like, oh, you Christians, you're not doing anything good for the culture, for the world in which you live, just go into your hovel and stay there. You want to pray? Pray to your God. I'm all for your religion. Just don't bring it out of your church. When you come out of your church, you need to bow the knee to something else, someone else. But friends, whether it's human government, or human philosophy, or human ambition, or human effort, or any other human endeavor, it all amounts to a ploy devised by the enemy of our souls to win our devotion. Six, even if you lay a million of them side by side, will never, ever be seven. So my counsel is don't worry about technology and computer chips. I mean, if you want to worry about them a little bit, you can worry about them at some appropriate level. You have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself today, whose mark you bear. Is your faith in man? Some people are fond of saying, well, I have faith in myself. Well, you're just a person. 
You see, your faith isn't in. If you say, and then you, if you try to unpack that, you realize they don't even know what they are when they say they have faith in themselves. It's this idea, where are you going to put your trust? Are you sealed by the living God unto salvation? And how do you know that? You know it because you believe. If you believe, you have been sealed. And if that's the case, then the mark of God is upon you. And the angel will pass over your house when it comes to death itself. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would be wise unto our environment and that we would place our hope, our faith, our primary allegiance squarely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. And I pray, Father, that in the knowledge of this, there would be great peace and comfort in our souls. And we pray in his holy and precious name. Amen.